is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, the Bureau of Meteorology has forecast a hotter and drier than average wet season for northern Australia. But some good news, possibility of sort of an average rainfall summer in New South Wales. We'll get a little bit more detail on that shortly. Also, Australia's hazelnut industry is reeling from the news that the Ferrero Group is giving up on its $70 million investment to grow the nut in southern New South Wales extremely disappointed not only for you know the industry in general but certainly for all of those uh, people that had been employed and engaged in building uh, such a uh, impressive uh, orchard and business uh, so you know a lot of hard work and uh, toil and uh, an effort went into it more on that story shortly as well in regards to hazelnuts and uh, on the season as well uh, or uh, any of the other issues uh, that you hear about on the program, including the uh, uh, the news that there seems to be an uncertain future lying ahead for workers at one of Broken Hills mines and, uh, and quite a number of jobs could be lost as a result. Uh, you can always send us a text here at the Country Hour. Uh, the number for that is 0467922684. But first, let's uh, look at uh, El Nino because the bomb has forecast a hotter and drier than average wet season for northern Australia, but the possibility of more like an average rainfall outlook for New South Wales. A combination of El Nino, positive IOD, and uh, no strong signs from uh, the oscillation index. They indicate that... Uh, Less thunderstorm activity and less monsoonal rain is expected for the north and also uh, the reduced likelihood of cyclones, more uh, reduction than usual. And uh, the forecasters are there saying that uh, New South Wales, uh, although we're expecting uh, a hot summer, it may not be as dry as uh, people had been fearing. So we'll uh, uh, get the latest on that uh, now from the Bureau because... uh, I was speaking earlier to Caitlin Minnie about the outlook. Uh, She's a climatologist at the Bureau of Meteorology about uh, what the latest forecast is for this this El Nino we're facing. Yeah, so the El Nino um, is expected to last um, into next year, into 2024. Um, And, of course, there's been talk about it being a strong El Nino. However, there doesn't tend to be a strong relationship with the amount of rainfall and temperature and the strength of an El Nino. Um, So just because there's an El Nino active doesn't mean that it's going to be dry and hot. Um, That's not a guarantee. Um, Usually during summer, we do see reduced rainfall over Australia's northeast for a typical El Nino, um, and we are seeing that dry signal in our long-range forecast across the northeast, um, and also warmer conditions are typical of an El Nino in summer, and we are seeing um, above-median temperatures forecast um, across pretty much all of Australia for summer. Right, but what about rainfall? Because I understand that uh, it's looking a little bit more promising in terms of rainfall, particularly for the New South Wales. Yeah, so New South Wales, uh, there's a a range, I guess, of of outcomes that could come into fruition over summer. Um, So that means that our model is forecasting it could be very wet, could be very dry, or it could be close to a normal summer for rainfall in New South Wales. Um, Our rainfall forecast is changing, but we're hoping that there will be better model agreement, um, especially when we release our summer outlook at the end of November. Um, So looking at the long-range forecast is the best place to look um, for what will be forecast for New South Wales. 
But I suppose for those people that have missed out on a lot of rain, and some people in some parts of New South Wales have had the driest year ever, at least it's a little bit of a hope. Yes, of course, it has been exceptionally dry um, and people should be prepared for the dry to continue because, of course, as we said, there's a range of outcomes that there could be for, for New South Wales. However, we're not seeing that really strong dry signal like we're seeing in other parts of the country for New South Wales. Yeah, that's right. So uh, pretty dry in Queensland, WA, Victoria and even South Australia. Yeah, across a lot of the north um, is likely to experience um, unusually low rainfall for summer and also across a lot of Tasmania. Yeah, so and and it's quite it's quite uh, obvious when you look at the map, isn't it? You, you look you look at uh, the map and the percentages, uh, you know, dry is a feature. Dry and hot is a feature for for many yeah. states. Yeah, definitely. Definitely that heat is a um, really uh, strong feature of our forecast um, with unusually high maximum and minimum temperatures likely across a lot of Australia for this coming summer. And that is the case for New South Wales too, although the, the chance of rainfall or average rainfall is a bit better in New South Wales. Yeah, it is, um, uh, I guess, a 50-50 chance of above or below or, or roughly um, thereabouts for New South Wales. Um, but not the case for for temperature looking to be a warm summer yeah that's right and but i guess with these things though it's it's statistically quite difficult isn't it i mean uh but as we're moving you know uh, towards summer it is it's the models get a bit better don't they in predicting things yeah, so the, the shorter amount of time that a model has for, for predicting, the, the better it is. So if we're looking at um, what the chances are of above or below median temperatures into next year, um, that's a little bit trickier for the model to do than the likes of, say, a seven-day forecast. Um, it does also mean that when we're forecasting high um, higher than average temperatures, um, that doesn't mean that some days will be below average because it's the forecast for the whole season or for the whole month. Uh, but generally, we've seen the warming trend. I mean, we've seen that global warming, climate change, a warming trend. Yes, there is definitely a warming trend coming through um, and that is being shown in, yes, lots of lots of warm in our long-range forecasts. We've got um, the warming trend from global warming, um, as well as the active El Nino and the positive Indian Ocean Dipole um, affecting our rainfall and temperatures for the coming season. So the Indian Dipole, that, that's, what's, uh, that's what you're looking at now for that, that sort of nuanced approach for rainfall? Yeah, so um, the, there's a number of factors that go into the forecast and number of drivers. So that includes our um, currently active positive Indian Ocean Dipole, um, which leads to drier conditions across the south and the east, as well as the active El Nino. Um, and we also monitor other aspects such as um, ocean temperatures, the southern annular mode, which works on a bit of a shorter time scale um, than the likes of the positive Indian Ocean Dipole and El Nino, um, and record um, warm temperatures globally as well, um, as we're looking at a pretty warm year for 2023. Yeah, probably a record. Yeah, looking to shape up that way. 
Caitlin Minnie is a climatologist at the Bureau of Meteorology. It's uh, coming up to 12 minutes past 12 here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, in the, in the light of that sort of longer range forecast, do I feed or do I sell? That's the key question a lot of farmers are weighing up right now. It's a decision that has been made even tougher by the sharp, sharp downturn in livestock prices. But there are some positive signs on the horizon. The outlook for December rain, as we just heard, is a lot better than was first thought. Phil Graham from Graham Advisory is urging farmers to crunch the numbers before rushing into a decision. It's been different to anyone I've been through before in that people seem to have taken on board the the seasonal forecast side uh, a lot more than I think I've ever seen before. And there's a lot of people talking about there's just a lot of noise out there. Um, they've been bombarded with stuff. And the first talk about El Nino, I think, started in April and it's gone on since then. Um, uh, of late, the stock prices, that's provided more noise um, uh, interest rates have gone up. You know, let's not forget that. That's that's putting noise and pressure into the system. And um, good comment you made to me yesterday, Josh. That, you know, summer coming on and, and a few fires around, people start remembering um, that, that black period a few years ago. So there's all this noise around, and and that's causing some people to struggle with their their thinking. And and in some cases, I've seen the the negativity isn't doesn't their seasonal conditions are such that they don't really need to be in a negative frame of mind. When you drill down into the Bureau's outlook, what are the key messages that you're bringing out and bringing to the the front of mind for for producers about what they can expect not only for the last couple of weeks in November but December and then also January? Well, when I go and look at the BOMS forecast, uh, whether it's for the next couple of weeks or or a month or three months out, what I'm seeing for southern New South Wales, or that applies for a lot of New South Wales, is it doesn't necessarily line up with what the headlines are saying. I said to someone the other day, if you look at some of the maps um, for New South Wales, I think you could write two headlines. Um, it depends on your attitude whether you want to write a pessimistic one or an optimistic one. Um, so my view is for people is to... Don't look at the headlines you get. Go and look at the actual data for your district. You can zero in on it and and get a bit of clarity about what the forecast is. Now, there's no doubt about it. In the last month, the forecast for this summer in terms of rainfall has become less negative than what it was back in October. So we've just got to watch that trend. But, you know, it's... I think you've got to deal with what the data is, just not what headlines you're hearing and... Sometimes people are hearing headlines, you know, three and four. Three, it's gone through three and four people before they're getting it. Go to the go to the source and look at it yourself. Mm. And I'm quoting here from the bureau: above median rainfall is around a 60% chance for interior parts of the mainland, including northern and central inland parts of New South Wales. So, a 60% chance of median rainfall. That's that's pretty positive. It's a bit different to. Um, all the headlines saying um, we're in El Nino and it's going to be dry and terrible. It's quite a it's quite a dramatic difference. Now it's going to be hot, but we're in a the world's warming, so every every summer from now on is going to be above average because you you look, you look back for the last thirty years, it's going to go up. So yes, we're going to have hotter temperatures, and yes, that has an impact on on evaporation rates and water use and things like that. But from from straight rainfall, the forecast has certainly become 
um, less negative over the last couple of months, and I think people need to keep that in mind. You're also helping producers work through the cost benefits of feeding versus selling stock. What's the what are the key um, messages you've got for producers that are that are weighing up those decisions now? Well, the bottom line is no one likes the stock prices. The bottom line, people look at the the cost of feeding and they don't like what that number is. But you, you've got to put the two together. Um, because the stock prices are so low, it might be that the best outcome for you is to uh, um, spend the money on feeding um, because of the outcome that might mean. You keep those animals, you, instead of having to market them now under a forced scenario, you might take them through into, into 2024. Now, I've got no crystal ball what's going to happen to the stock market. Um, if you look at the data from previous, I think, 2006, 2013, um, we had rapid collapses of stock prices, sheep, mutton and lamb in the spring due to seasonal conditions. And then we, when we got into the following year, they recovered, rebounded back quite quickly. And I don't think, I'm not saying they're going to rebound back to the levels they were 12 months ago, but they can certainly move back. So I think you just you just got to be careful you don't react of, oh, the food price is terrible, I've got to sell. Sometimes the best option is to, in fact, uh, wear the food cost and pick up the higher price down the track. But that's, everyone's got to make their own decisions, you know. Um, but I think it's a case where people need to examine it rather than just dismiss it without having worked through the numbers. Phil Graham from Graham Advisory talking there to Josh Beck and our local land services are hosting some workshops. Phil Graham's going to be presenting at the Delegate Hotel tomorrow, uh, 9 till 12 in the morning in, in Bega on the 23rd at the LLS office at 1pm. And you can also see an online webinar with more details on the LLS website or local land services website. It's 18 minutes past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music, and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Now, an uncertain future lies ahead for the workers at one of Broken Hill's mines following the announcement of a staged shutdown of operations. Some staff at uh, CBH Resources Rasp Mine have been told today will be their last on site, while others will find out their fate at the end of the month. For many, their future will hinge on whether or not the mine can be sold. The Japanese parent company Toho Zinc is searching for a buyer, apparently. 200 workers in total, including contractors, could be impacted by the closure of the operation. For more details, we're joined by our reporter in Broken Hill, Bill Orman. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How's it going? Very well. Uh, Not so great for the staff at CBH Resources Rasp Mine, though. I understand the news for this was a bit out of the blue. Yeah, it came as a shock to both the workers and the union. Um, Basically, the workers received a text message on the Sunday night uh, alerting them to the to the fact that there would be a meeting or a number of meetings the next morning on the Monday and then when they got to the meeting it was unclear what was going to happen and they uh, were told pretty quickly that uh, they'd be most likely made redundant by the end of November and as you sort of mentioned there in the intro a number of the workers actually were told that their their work was done there and uh, drilling has stopped and so all the workers associated or most of the workers associated with that have um, unfortunately been made redundant and uh, the other workers basically just have to wait until the end of November to find out what their fate might be. 
and quite a lot of uh, staff will be affected, it seems. Yeah, well, about 200. Uh, a mixture of mine workers and contractors there. Uh, and then I guess the flow-on effect, uh, there's a lot of industries that are related to mining. I mean, Broken Hill's got a rich mining history dating back to the 1880s. Um, so there's plenty of uh, businesses around town that rely on whether directly or indirectly um, the money that comes in through mining. So it'll, it sort of remains to be seen. It's hard to calculate what the impact might be if uh, the mine doesn't sell. Yeah, and uh, 200 jobs and that sort of flow-on effect, multiplier effect from those sort of salaries not in the town, you know, that's, uh, that, that's not going to be easy for the town to absorb. No, certainly not. Uh, not by any stretch of the imagination. So it's a big blow for Broken Hill and... Um Yes, it'll be interesting to see what happens. They're really, really, um, for the for the miners' sake and a lot of the families and uh, those associated with it, um, they'll be hoping that they can find a buyer in, in the next month or so or in the next couple of weeks, really. Yeah, exactly. And any reasons given for the what was really a very sudden closure? Hmm. Well, CBH Resources declined to be interviewed, but they did release a statement yesterday just sort of outlining the fact that their parent company, Toho Zinc, was just not in a position to invest anymore. They are actively seeking a new owner, and unless they find one, they will close down the mine in November. So um, they're fairly fairly hopeful. Um, We're not really hearing any whispers yet. There are um, other mining operations in Broken Hill, um, but they're not they're sort of remaining quite tight-lipped on whether they might consider taking on some of the workers or whether they might consider taking the mine over itself. Do we, do we know much more about Toho Zinc? Is it a company that's uh, facing some trouble at the moment as to, as to why they're not in a position to reinvest? It's it's really unclear at this stage. We haven't actually heard anything from Toho Zinc, and the executive, um, the executives are meeting from CBH are meeting with Toho Zinc in Sydney at the moment. Um, they flew some of them flew out from Broken Hill yesterday, which um, which wasn't a particularly good look for for some of them. Um, going off what people are saying around town, it wasn't a particularly a uh, good look. Um, but uh, they're meeting today and tomorrow, and so they should have a better idea of what's going on moving forward. And we sh- we should hopefully be able to hear from one of the executives based in Broken Hill um, in the next couple of days. But I guess until then, we won't really know much more. Right. Okay. And, uh, you know, I would have thought with uh, with uh, moves to renewables and also demand for things like phones and cars, zinc and lead and silver would have been quite sought after commodities too. Oh, certainly. And, um, well, speaking to a number of locals around town there was fairly there was a fair bit of optimism around with things like critical minerals of course cobalt blue is a project that's sort of floating around in the ether at the moment that could create or it's at least they're saying they could create up to 400 jobs in broken hill that's based on the back of of those critical minerals you just spoke about there and then you've got other projects like hydro store which is an underground air compression storage facility and that should come online or at least the construction Construction for it should start in 2024, in the, in the middle of the year. So there are plenty of job opportunities, but I suppose it just comes at a poor time where you don't really have... Um, it's, it's not like there's a, a couple of months until you can get a job. It, it's sort of six six to nine months before jobs might be available. So it, it might really hit the town pretty hard. Mm. And so what are the locals on the ground saying then? Well, most people are shocked. As I said, it's a mining town. Um, that's its identity. 
Uh, and, and up until recently, it seemed to be going quite well for CBH Resources. They recently opened a new mine entrance at quite a bit of a cost as well, and I know that was sort of years in the planning. Um, so people thought things were ticking along quite nicely. I did speak to the Mayor, Tom Kennedy. Um, he was very surprised um, by what happened and the announcement, and he hopes the families are, are doing all right. And although he, like the union, who I've also spoken to, they were fairly optimistic there would be a buyer. I think you've got some audio. Oh, look, uh, I really feel for the workers. There's nothing worse than being told at short notice that uh, their jobs uh, will be finishing in 24, some earlier. They've been offered voluntary uh, redundancy. Uh, the RAS mine is set to close. Uh, but what is uh, a positive out of that is Toho has made the put the mine in a position where uh, they are looking for other buyers, and I'd hope that uh, a buyer comes forth really quickly uh, so that the employees that are currently employed at CBH Resources um, can have uh, stability moving forward. That was Broken Hill Mayor Tom Kennedy, fairly optimistic about the future of the mine, and that's off the back of uh, millions of dollars of recent investment. So there is optimism in town, but I guess uh, there's a lot up in the air at the same time. Yeah, so looking for a buyer, and uh, also uh, some of those other workers will know their fate uh, by the end of November. That's right. Okay, Bill, thanks for that. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Bill Ormond, who's our reporter in Broken Hill. It's uh, coming up to 26 minutes past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. In some uh, other business news, is also uh, not so great either. Australia's hazelnut industry is reeling from the news that the Ferrero Group is giving up on a $70 million investment to grow the uh, hazelnut in southern New South Wales. A big operation there. The Italian confectionery company behind the brands Ferrero Rocher, Nutella and Kinder Surprise planted a million trees near Narandra. But now they're ripping them out and they're putting the property up for sale as a bit of a clean slate. Emily Doak has more. When the Australian arm of the Ferrero Group launched its $70 million hazelnut production venture in the Riverina a decade ago, it was lauded as a shot in the arm for the local industry. A million trees were planted by 2018, but the company says yields have fallen below expectations, making the project no longer commercially viable. Executive Officer of Hazelnut Growers of Australia, Trevor Ranford, is disappointed the trees are being pushed out. Extremely disappointed, not only for you know the industry in general, but certainly for all of those uh, people that have been employed and engaged in building uh, such a uh, impressive uh, orchard and business. Uh, so you know, a lot of hard work and uh, toil and uh, an effort went into it. But uh, you know, the decisions are being made by uh, people uh, who own the business outside of Australia and uh, you know, they're making those decisions on uh, you know, return on investment and uh, I suppose the current uh, climatic uh, or environmental uh, and financial uh, situations uh, that exist in the world at the present moment. Selling agent Matt Childs from CBRE expects the 2,600 hectare property with more than 11,000 megalitres of water entitlements will fetch more than $80 million. And he says the fact that it's free of hazelnut trees is an advantage. Sometimes these buyers would need to uh, go and remove those trees themselves, which is a significant investment just in doing that. 
uh, and also a significant amount of time to prepare the land so that it's ready for that new planting. So this is all being fast-tracked. It's being offered as a reversion opportunity, as in the land has been reverted from hazelnut trees back to a, a you know a black uh, irrigated platform. But not to mention also installation of the irrigation infrastructure takes time as well. Uh, you expect that it, it's going to be um, of interest for permanent horticulture plantings. Is there much interest and what's the market like in that sector at the moment in your experience? Um, we're still a few weeks away from knowing the end result, but so far we're pretty satisfied with how it's performing. I mean, there's parts of the agribusiness market at the moment that are struggling, especially around livestock and those operators, but it seems like the institutional and corporate space, particularly around horticulture and particularly with strong and reliable um, irrigation water entitlements, that part of the market still has quite a bit of strength. Trevor Ranford from Hazelnut Growers of Australia says while the exit of Ferrero from growing nuts locally is a blow, there's still potential for the Australian industry to grow and fill gaps in supply. As the other uh, producers uh, increase, then uh, maybe their volumes uh, can be utilised uh, by uh, Ferrero uh, in, in their processing facilities. And you know, I think the important thing is that um, some of the genetic material that uh, they brought into uh, and, and planted within that orchard has been distributed uh, uh, through their nursery to, to other growers uh, around Australia. So um, you know, there's that opportunity to see uh, you know, ongoing expansion of those uh, varieties that uh, were considered uh, uh, you know, most valuable uh, for their confectionery type business. Trevor Ranford from Hazelnut Growers of Australia ending that report from Emily Doak. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's uh, half past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio, New South Wales. Well, we've had the heads up from uh, Adam's story that he's uh, running a little bit late and getting us the news headlines, so uh, let's find out what's happening with the weather details. We do have the Bureau uh, on the line today after some technical issues yesterday. Juan Park at the Bureau, good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon, Michael. So we're looking at uh, some thunderstorm activity around the state in the next few days or so? Yes, that's the idea. Yes, starting from today, uh, we are seeing increasing high cloud and uh, maybe uh, and some isolated showers or thunderstorms across the west and the southeast, and also we are for expecting a shower to develop along the south coast and the southern ranges today uh, due to the development of a trough uh, that will be lying across the west and uh, extending into the south coast today. Uh, but not expecting much rainfall out of this. Um, but uh, if you're not getting any rainfall, um, probably because of, uh, you know, that the patchy, uh, patchy uh, rainfall or maybe, you know, because of the nature of isolated nature of thunderstorms, you know, it, it, it will be hit and miss and otherwise partly cloudy with the increasing high cloud in many parts. And for the temperatures, it will be low to mid 20s uh, maximum temperatures across the south, tending high 20s to low 30s in the north. 
And then over the coming days, as it, a series of troughs uh, develops inland and the southern part of the state and heads to the northeast, we expect the focus of the showers or thunderstorms to shift to the northeast over the uh, coming days, although there may be, will still be some isolated showers or thunderstorms in the central east as well as far northern inland as well. But the focus of the thunderstorm activities will be in the northeast where we may see a severe thunderstorms that may bring damaging wind gusts and large hail along the north coast during the midweek period, including Wednesday and Thursday. And also ahead of this trough, we also expect increasing heat combined with gusty westerly winds. That means uh, extreme fire dangers about the uh, northern inland, northern inland, and maybe upper central west as well. Um, during uh, during maybe uh, during the midweek period, especially on Thursday, and also we expect uh, more widespread uh, rainfall in uh, in the form of showers or thunderstorms along the coast uh, uh, from Thursday into Friday with the increasing southerly winds. Okay, so and uh, sounds like, so the tablelands, uh, northern tablelands, likely to get a bit more rain. Uh, sounds like some rain over the the uh, those areas affected by fire as well. So that's that's uh, so that's a positive thing in terms of rainfall. Although damaging hail and uh, thunderstorm and high winds is not uh, not great. That, that's right. Yes. So I mean, that, uh, yes. Although the rainfall, uh, the main uh, areas of rainfall will be along the coast and adjacent ranges, but still, some of the rainfall will still deliver a few more rainfall uh, about the fire-affected areas in the, uh, along the north coast. But there are also, unfortunately, new fires also developing about the northern and central inland. And but over those areas, we are not expecting much rainfall, but maybe. Uh, the dry thunderstorms or if there's any thunderstorms or showers at all it will be high based on and only a few millimeters of rainfall so it may not really be good uh, mm. in the northern dry, yeah. part. dry thunderstorms yeah. can, ig- can ignite fires yeah yeah that's right, yes. And then uh, after that, yes, w- once the southerly wind surge moves across uh, the uh, eastern parts, we may see some drop of temperatures along the coast and east of the divide uh, during the midweek and latter part of the week uh, before the moisture increases again uh, during the weekend as the inland trough develops. That means uh, another bout of thunderstorms or showers expected across the east uh, you know, t- during the weekend into early new week. Okay, and into early new week. And it sounds like you know most parts of state could if they do get a bit of rain could get could get some thunderstorms activity throughout most of the state is that right yeah that that's right yes so um, but more likely but, on the coast and more likely to be in the uh, the northern part of the coast as well that's right yes exactly and especially uh, for tomorrow into thursday I guess the chance of seeing severe thunderstorms along the north coast is quite high, and we are likely to see um, a development of severe thunderstorms. And in that case, we will be issuing a severe thunderstorms warning. So watch this space. Although today's severe thunderstorm risk is quite minimal, you know, apart from some, you know, isolated shower storm, but that's not going to be severe today. But as I said, tomorrow and into Thursday, yes, more likelihood, yes. Okay, Juan, thanks for that. Yeah, my pleasure. It's 25 minutes to one. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. And uh, it's time to uh, get some news headlines now. He's finally arrived. He's I mean, here. what time do you call this? <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I wasn't going to say anything, you know, nasty. Which is what I you said know. to the guy who was supposed to be <laughs> at my place between 9 and 11.30. Oh, I see. Yeah. Right, okay. 10 to 12. <laughs> what time do you call this, well, mate? Well, you well, you made it. So there, I'm there here. What, hey, are you, I'm what are you complaining about? And yeah. you got the work done as well. I got the work done. <laughs> It could have been worse. He might not have turned up at all. Well, that's true. <laughs> we've yeah, been, that's true. We've been there. We've all been there. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, what's happening in the all news? All right, we better get on to... Uh, Apart from the, your personal news. My personal <laughs> news, which is not good, yeah. Um, uh, we're going to go to Israel now. Israel says they've found evidence of uh, the hostages being held in the basement of a Gaza hospital. Now, um, uh, Hamas, in return, has released a video saying... They're willing to. They haven't said. The Hamas hasn't said yes. That's the case. But they said they've uh, they've put out a video saying they're willing to free seventy hostages uh, in exchange for two hundred and children, seven and seventy five women uh, who Hamas says are allegedly detained in Israel. Uh, in addition to a five-day ceasefire. Now, uh, Israel has yet to comment on that, uh, but says negotiation on hostage exchanges are ongoing. Uh, now the White House uh, is hoping a meeting between President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping uh, will produce uh, some results. The two are scheduled to meet this week on the sidelines of the APEC summit in San Francisco. They've not actually spoken to each other in a year, either on the phone or oh, right. just friendly text or oh. Oh. Instagram or anything like that. Oh. So, yeah, it could be, a, could be a bit of an icy greeting, but... Um, uh, yeah, so uh, I'm sure they'll come out of that and agree to disagree on a number of uh, issues. Uh, back home, the opposition leader accusing the government of not doing enough to ease concerns about community safety following the release of 80 people from immigration detention. Uh, the government says the detainees are on visas with strict conditions, including regular reporting, and it is looking at legislative options. Uh, but Peter Dutton says the new laws aren't being introduced uh, quickly enough. Uh, and they, uh, Peter Dutton says they could have actually should have come up with something by now. Uh, but uh, these people are in the community uh, as we speak following that ruling that um, you can't, uh, if, you, if a person is stateless, basically, mm. you can't detain them indefinitely. Mm. Uh, and the National Film and Sound Archive has added 11 new pieces of audio to it's a registry, uh, so they're sort of baked into the cake of uh, the Australian psyche. Uh, one of them is Sherbet's 1976 hit, How's That? <laughs> I mean, that bass line is just... Dum, 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 dum. Uh, we've also got uh, The Loved Ones uh, by uh, The Loved Ones. Oh, yeah, oh, the yeah. original one, the not, not the one by NXS, but the, uh, no, because they did no, a no, 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 they no, no, no. This is well. the yeah. 1966. Yeah, yeah, well, that's a great song. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and also the uh, the Seekers, uh, I am Australian. Right. Is that I the actual that name of it? You are. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure, but it's. Uh, yeah. But I would have thought that would be in the I archive thought that already. Would have been yeah, in there was, already, but yeah. 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 I mean, some of, and some of the. Mind you, it was only written in the last. Well, it's in the 60s, so. Oh, the, what, they it? wrote that in the yeah, 60s? Wasn't it, wasn't it? I always thought it was part of their 60s. Oh, was it? Oh, fact. I thought it was something they came up so, over no. the last 30 years or something. Oh, that could be wrong. We need to, we need to Google oh, it and find God, out. More work for me. <laughs> more homework for you. <laughs> it may have been. I wasn't around then, Michael. <laughs> I don't know. Didn't okay. go to the original. I'll you at the well, mind music, did I. Bowl, were you? Yeah. Neither did I. I yeah, wasn't there either. <laughs> <laughs>
was, but I was probably a twinkle in the eye yeah. <laughs> in the early 60s. I mentioned the music belt, so that did, well, may still hold the record for the biggest concert oh, yeah. in I Australia. Think, I, think it, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They were hanging off the rafters. Yeah. Incredible. The vision of that is yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a great concert too, and it's all and and the color they 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 shot it in color at the time, mm. which cost a fortune. Oh, absolutely! But it, but it was uh, because they were at that stage they were an international, international. hit. They were huge mm. in the UK, mm. so yeah, that was that was the reason why why it was done that way, and it was incredible. Yeah. All right, all right I'll find out. <laughs> Homework for tomorrow. All right, thanks for that, Adam. You're listening to the Country Hour. It's twenty minutes to one. Getting some texts on the uh, long-term forecast that uh, we were talking about there in terms of the issue of uh, whether or not the bomb, uh, the the bombs talking about the fact that uh, the forecast is looking for a little bit more of the possibility of rain. Someone's saying, oh, well, they're having a bet each way. So that's uh, they're, they're concerned that uh, that's what the bomb always does. And in fact, we're getting quite a few texts that are, that are uh, along those lines as well. And uh, yes, uh, but somebody else is, um, John is uh, questioning uh, why they're bulldozing a million hazelnut trees, uh, says John. Well, the reason is because when they want to uh, sell the land, they want to sell it as a clean slate, John. So that means a million of those trees that have been put in on that hazelnut farm um, by owned by Ferreira Share that... Uh, they're, they want a clean slate, so uh, they've uh, bulldozed, they're bulldozing a million trees. It's uh, coming up to 19 minutes to one. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, farmers are calling on the state government to provide subsidies to help ease the cost of installing water meters on farms. The review is currently underway into the non-urban water metering rules to explore what barriers there have been to compliance and find some solutions. That's five years since the framework was introduced. New South Wales Water Minister Rose Jackson says at the current pace it would take until 2040 for the state to be compliant, but as she told Amelia Bernasconi, there are options on the table to change the non-urban metering framework for the future. One of the first things that I did when I became the Minister for Water was receive a briefing from NRA, the independent regulator, about where they were up to with um, compliance on non-urban water metering, and it was not a pretty picture. We have a number of the cohorts that are meant to be compliant with very, very low compliance rates. It was explained to me that on the current trajectory, we would not reach um, no meter, no pump principles until 2040. It was completely unacceptable from where um, I was sitting. So we launched a review um, into the non-urban metering framework to see what we can do to ensure that those compliance rates are higher. Going into that, I imagine you had some ideas yourself of how this could be, um, you know, better worked. Obviously, we can't wait till 2040. Um, so what what ideas are around? How could we see this framework be changed to, to make this feasible? Mm. I mean, some of the key feedback that I've heard is requirements around um, DQPs or qualified persons to install the meters and the telemetry devices are quite difficult to meet. So perhaps expanding the number of people that are considered qualified persons to actually install meters um, is one way um, that we might be able to ensure that they're actually um, done and done properly. I think there's also uh, a question around people's um, 
incentives to actually get this done. And, and by that, I mean, yes, we need some positive incentives, some, some carrots, making it easier for people, but also some sticks too. I think there are some water users, certainly not all, but some who don't really feel as though this is a priority for government and maybe haven't been taking it very seriously. Well, I do take it seriously. And so for people who are refusing to comply, I think that there should be some stronger penalties associated with that. Um, so, you know, it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of incentives, making it easier, expanding the number of qualified persons, um, but also making clear that if people just aren't willing um, to take the steps that they need to take to ensure that all water um, is properly metered and properly measured, then there will be, you know, significant penalties for that as well. Looking at those uh, sort of carrots that you mentioned that there might need to be, we've heard a lot of talk about compensation, whether it's subsidies or something to help take the financial cost off this, particularly for, for smaller time users. Is that on the table at all? Look, it is. We have already had some subsidy schemes to try and reduce the cost of compliance. And so that concept is in the mix. And, you know, we are willing to do what it takes to ensure that people are able to comply. Um, as I said, people that want to do the right thing but might be struggling to afford meters or might be struggling to find the right person to install them, we absolutely want to work with them. So for the vast majority of people who want to do the right thing, we're keen to hear the feedback about how we can do that. Um, and as I said, for the small group who don't feel as though this is something that they need to do um, and are looking to avoid um, you know, their obligations to meter um, and measure all water take, well, um, as I said, there'll be penalties in relation to that. Is it too big of a task to go in and say all the water users in New South Wales, which I understand there's about 40,000 licence holders, you all need to become compliant within this time frame. Is there an option to perhaps draw a line somewhere, the bigger commercial operators versus the smaller water users, and focus on one group first? Absolutely. So we are trying to take a risk-based approach. You are right. There are tens of thousands of water users in New South Wales, and some of them are taking a very small amount of water for small-scale family farm operations. They are not nearly um, as you know important in terms of the compliance work that we want to, that we want to do than the big agribusinesses that are taking a substantial amount. And taking a risk-based approach where we start with the big users, with the big pumps who are taking the vast majority of water is exactly what we're looking at doing. For some water users in that um, high risk category, the very high water user category, we've got relatively good compliance now. We're up to about 90% at the very top end. Um, but the cohort just below that, who are also very substantial water users, unfortunately, we really don't have a lot of compliance in that category. And that's where we're really focusing our efforts. So, you're absolutely right. If you are a small-scale family farm that has maybe one pump, you know, look, I encourage you to, you know, look to get a meter installed. I think it's the right thing to do so that we do know how much water is being used where and when. But really, the focus of the New South Wales government is, is not that. We do want to focus on the bigger users who are taking the vast majority of water. In speaking to people throughout this consultation period at the moment, there is a little bit of hesitation and I guess a loss of faith, particularly off the back of the changes to coastal harvestable rights. What would you say to those people who might have lost a bit of faith in the government taking charge on water policy here? Look, I mean, I think people can understand that as a new government comes in, there's going to be a check-in on how, you know, water policy um, is being implemented. And 
you know, there's going to be some changes and, you know, things that aren't going well, we're going to look to turn them around. So non-urban metering is an example of that. Coastal harvestable rights, to be honest, was an example of that too. So, you know, again, one of the first things that I got briefed on when I became the minister was the fact that the work that I had understood was being done to ensure that catchment by catchment, sustainable water extraction limits was being determined was significantly behind schedule, significantly. And that as we enter a drying period, it's, you know, really important that we ensure that our water use is sustainable um, and fair. Sustainable and fair sharing of water, no meter, no pump, knowing what water is being used where and when. Um, and, you know, fair fair sharing of water between our towns, um, our agriculture um, and irrigation businesses and the environment. New South Wales Water Minister Rose Jackson well David Williams runs a dairy at Vasey. He'll be making a submission to the review and says smaller farmers need help. I'm going to be um, outlining the expense of what it's going to be. Like I said, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 to put in a metre. And um, a lot of people... The problem comes that you don't mind spending the money, but putting it on a river bank, there's a hostile environment that gets flooded. You know, we've only, the last few years, probably been flooded three or four times. So, yeah, it's very expensive um, equipment to have sitting on the river bank. And the other problem is if um, when you pull it out, you've got to get a qualified person to come back and put it in again. So, yeah, every time you pull it out, you just suffer more expense. Um if the government is absolutely desperate to have metres, I think they may probably need to subsidise them. Scott Wheatley's the Secretary of the Hunter Valley Water Users Association. He told Amelia Berners-Coney he's not surprised at the lack of compliance given the challenges faced during installation. That's something we told them was going to happen at the very, very initial stages of the rollout. Um, it's, we've done our work and, and looked at it and you didn't need to be a road scholar to work out that it was going to be very expensive for each user to to install these metres and at that time the metres weren't available and the telemetry system wasn't even up and running and it's still not up and running properly yet. So now that you've got this review underway, the option for feedback, what are the big points that you would like to see addressed in this review? One of the main ones for the hunter regulated users is the, is the removal of the burden on smaller users. Um, We've got different rules in, in the hunter regulated system to the rest of the state. So that, that's something we really want to push straight away. And there's also some confusion around bores and wells, um, depending on the size of the hole in the ground. Um, we need that rectified. And, yeah, just the cost, um, trying, to re- trying to remove some of the, the cost barriers to installing the metres. Scott Wheatley, Secretary of the Hunter Valley Water Users Association. It's 10 to 1. Hello, I'm Stephanie Smale. Join me for The World Today. Rental crisis, 1.3 million households struggling to keep a roof over their heads, with Australian rental affordability at an all-time low. Optus fallout, the telcos blaming a routine software outage for its unprecedented network crash. But how will that sit with customers? And music to our ears, the 80s slip-slop-slap ad jingle, one of this year's Sounds of Australia picks. 
And on the country, there are renewed calls for the state government to increase compensation for Clarence prawn fishers forced out of the industry by white spot disease. A petition has attracted about 400 signatures, with the professional operators being offered as little as $33,000 a vessel to walk away from their life's work. Stephen Armstrong, who has a profit-sharing arrangement with a number of commercial fishers in the Clarence, says that amount should be tripled. The compensation is a fairly paltry amount. Uh, they offered initially a package as income support for two years, which varied widely depending on people's catch history. And then they're speculating whether they can remove the white spot virus from that estuary. Um, mind you, historically, they've never removed it from any other estuary. Once it gets in, it's pretty much a permanent infection. In the short term, it's basically you, you've got the option of not prawning um, or you can continue prawning and cook all your prawns before selling them. However, uh, some of the bait industry, it's not really economic to do that as such. Cost of cooking it and stuff is, you know, you, you basically don't make any money out of selling small prawns for bait if you have to cook them first. And just to clarify, you're not taking issue with the fact that these businesses were terminated, right? You, you agree that that is what needed to be done? Well, look at what happened to Varroa mite. They didn't get on top of that quickly enough when it came into Newcastle and now it's slowly spreading all over the place. So I think the best option would be to remove all wild-caught prawning from the area and sterilise prawn farms, which I think they've probably already done. Stephen Armstrong, who uh, is uh, saying that there's 400 signatories uh, on that petition and uh, says the compensation needs to be drastically increased for those uh, prawn fishermen to help them out uh, through the tough times. It's uh, time to go to markets. First up, Wodonga Cattle. Good afternoon. Numbers doubled with 2,026 cattle offered at Wodonga. It was an excellent offering with a large percentage heavy steers and bullocks and heifers. Trade cattle in reasonable supply along with 519 cows. All buyers made it to the sale this week resulting in substantial price increases across export categories. Heavy steers jumped 25, 170 to 225. Bullocks gained 15, 185 to 237. Heavy feeder steers picked up 15 cents topping at 220. Trade steers were firm 144 to 225. Feeder steers 185 to 225. Feeder heifers 180 to 198 for the medium weights. Trade heifers 157 to 240. They were back 30 cents. Heavy heifers improved 6 to 10, 175 to 213. Heavy cows picked up 5, 180 to 190. Middle run of leaner types 148 to 174. I'm Leanne Ducks for MLA. Forbes Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. Numbers fell this summer with agents yarding 24,150 head. There was 14,250 lambs penned and quality continues to be very mixed with some handy lines of trade and heavyweight lambs available along with a large percentage of planar and secondary types. The usual buyers are present competing in a firm to slightly better market on the better lambs. There was 4,600 new season lambs penned with prices holding fairly steady. Trade weight lambs 20 to 24 kilo, selling from 94 to 123 dollars a head. Heavy lambs 24 to 26 kilo, sold from 125 to 138. 
Old lambs followed a similar trend with the better lambs attracting stronger competition. Trade weight lambs 20 to 24 kilo sold from 52 to 110. Heavy lambs to 26 kilo received from 102 to 132. While the extra heavy weights sold from 128 to a top of $165 a head. The balance of the lambs, 9,900 head of mutton are still to be sold. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. To Karkor Cattle. Numbers were back a little free yarding of 3,119. It was a good quality yarding with, good, with a good selection of young cattle to suit the feeders and processors, along with good numbers of well-finished grown steers, heifers and cows. Young cattle with a trade were firm to five cents dearer, with prime vealers selling to 195. Prime yearling sold from 148 to 220. Feeder steers and lightweight feeder heifers were up to 20 cents dearer, while heavier feeder heifers were 8 cents cheaper. Feeder steers sold from 190 to 262, while feeder heifers sold from 145 to 235. Young cattle of the restockers were up to 20 cents dearer with the young steers, selling to 264 and the young heifers 230. Ground steers were 6 cents cheaper, while the ground heifers were close to firm. Prime ground steers sold from 182 to 220, while the ground heifers sold to 206. Cows were three cents cheaper with the two and three scores, selling from 50 to 166. Prime heavyweight cows sold from 162 to 189 to average 176. Bulls sold to 198. This is David Monk at CTLX for MLA. To Gunnar Cattle. Good afternoon. Numbers lifted to 1,800 in a very mixed quality penning that saw condition vary considerably. Young cattle well supplied along with a fair number of exports. All regular buyers were in attendance. Strong demand through the young cattle. Plain condition lightweights keenly sought by restockers with steers selling from 172 to 294 cents a kilo. The heifers 194 to 232 cents to show significant improvement. Medium weight yielding steers posted strong gains 228 to 285 cents. Heavy feed is also dearer, 225 to 270. Medium weight yielding heifers, 10 to 15 cents dearer and more in places, 196 to 242. Heavy trade yielding steers were firmed to dearer to 245 cents. Strong processor demands for heavy ground steers reached 240 cents a kilo. The well-finished heifers to 232. Dearer trends through the plain condition cow market, up to 8 cents with medium and heavyweights, 142 to 168. Little change to well-finished heavyweights, they sell from 162 to 200. 110 cents a kilo. James Armitage for MLA in Canada. To Inverell cattle. Good afternoon. Inverell increased by 500 head to offer 1,005. Young cattle dominated, although cow numbers increased. Regular buyers attended to a dearer market. Weaner steers and heifers sold to significantly dearer trends. Steers 240 to 304 and heifers to 231. All to restockers. Light yielding steers to feed 67 cents dearer, 230 to 298. And to background, 39 cents dearer, 192 to 296. Medium feeders, 190 to 240, up 19 cents a kilo. Yearling heifers were dearer in the main, although a quality lapse through light drafts saw a cheaper trend. Light restocker heifers, 188 to 222, to be 24 cents better. And feeders dearer, 220 to 231. Medium feeders were 8 cents dearer and sold to 240. Trade heifers made 220. Grown heifers to process, 205 to 218. Restocker cows 110 to 2.9, medium cows 11 cents dearer 138 to 150, heavy cows up 18 cents a kilo 184 to 208. Stephen Adams, MLA at Inverell. And scone cattle.
Good afternoon. A large crowd on hand and a spike of 40% in numbers saw Scone Agents Yard 533 good quality cattle. There were increased numbers of yearling steers to suit feedlot operations, a fair offering of supplemented grain yearlings and vealers to suit the local trade and around 40 cows penned. Following on from earlier sales this week, market trend dearer for most categories. Light and medium weight restock of steer wean is keenly sought to be 40 cents dearer, 168 to 298. Over 330 kilos to lot feeders reaching 282. Light and medium weight restock of heifer weaner saw big rises of 20 to 50 cents, 130 to 240, with a few bee muscle types to the local butchers making 260. Light yielding steers to lot feeders considerably dearer, 196 to 274. Over 400 kilos making to 220, whilst the best of the heifer yearlings to feed on made to 222. The few light and medium weight cows on offer saw greater demand from restockers, lot feeders, and exporters alike to be up to 38 cents dearer, 118 to 180, whilst the prime heavy three and four scores saw rises of 14 to 18 cents, trading between 180 to a top of 188 cents. Angus Barlow for MLA. At Scone. It's one o'clock.